chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Hear these words. And Jesus began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise up. And frankly, Jesus spoke the truth of God. And Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him, but then Jesus rebuked Peter. And turning and attending the disciples, he said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not think of God but of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus says, if any one of you wants to follow me, they, that one must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake and the good news will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, also the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory of his Father and the angels of holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. After graduating from the University of Texas, Hookham, I, um, I took a bus from Austin to Maine. It was a two and a half day bus ride. It was a journey itself. I lost my pack halfway. I lost my pack in Dallas and didn't have it again until Boston. And so I went a day without knowing if I'd have to get a bus back home because I didn't have my pack. I was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. This wasn't something that I planned along to. A few of my plans had fallen apart. And so I was like, ah, I'll just do this. I told my uh, mother and father who are with us today, it's like, so I'm going to go to Maine and walk for four months. And um, they were used to weird things coming out of my mouth. And so to my face, they said, sure, Wilson. Um, I don't know what they really thought. I don't really want to know what they really thought. Um, but but I, got up, I got up to, to Maine, and the first, um, when you're going south, the first thing you have to do is climb this mountain called Katahdin, Mount Katahdin. And it's um, the, plain, the sea level of most of inner Maine is about 1,000 feet, but Katahdin is about 5,000 feet above sea level. So it's a big, it, you can see it from a distance. It's a good hike up. So that first day, I, I climbed Katahdin with a guy who was a yo-yo. And so a yo-yo in the trail jargon is someone who starts in the south and they go to about Virginia or um, West Virginia and then they take a bus up north because they don't want to get stuck in the snows of Maine. And so they yo-yo hike the trail. And so he had already been hiking for about two months and was in really good shape. I had hiked zero and was in really bad shape. I just graduated college, so I was not in great shape. Um, and um, so he just raced up the mountain, and I was just huffing and puffing. And then down the mountain, the next day is what's called the 100-mile wilderness. So I hiked through this 100 miles of Maine swamp. Um, it wasn't black fly season, but it was just, there was a lot of black flies. There was a lot of ook. There was a lot of bogs. I think I had blisters the size of quarters on my shoe. It was just, it was miserable. I way overpacked. I took like six books. I took a guitar. I was not, I was not ready for this. Um, at the end of it, I sent a bunch of stuff back um, to my parents. I had a wonderful care package for my mom. Thanks, mom. Moms are great. Um, that was great. But eventually, I started getting stronger and picking up 
picking up the pace. I kind of figured out what I was doing. Um, and after uh, 25 days, I finally caught up with that guy who I'd summited with, the yo-yo. His, name, his trail name was Trail Light. We all had trail names. My trail name was Tex. It wasn't that interesting. Um, but um, but he, I caught up to him, and I was so excited. And I literally I found my journal like that's, uh, last month. And I literally said, I feel I, this was probably my best day so far, day 23. Um, those are ominous words. <laughs> and so the next day, um, I get up, and I know I, I have the toughest part of the trail ahead of me. Maine is pretty tough to hike um, because up, up north, they um, followed old Native American trails up creek beds, so there's not a lot of switchbacks. So when you go up a mountain, you go straight up the mountain and straight down the mountain, and it's like killer on your knees. Um, but I got, I got through Maine, and I was re- feeling good. I was just about to get to New Hampshire, and there were some, some high mountains in New Hampshire, but it wasn't going to be as rough. But I had to go through this one stretch called the Mahusik Notch. And the Mahusik Notch is, is the hardest, is about a mile and a half, and it's this, these canyons and boulders. It's called a notch because in New England they call canyons notches. I don't know. This is a picture of, of the Mahusik Notch, and you can see it, you, know, you can't really go fast through it, and there's, um, there's snow on the ground year-round uh, because the light doesn't hit there. And I hadn't lived in Colorado or Spicewood, Texas yet, so I didn't know it snowed, what, how to deal with snow. Um, it snowed twice since I've been here, so I assume it just snows all the time out here. And, um, and I wasn't ready for it, but I was going good. I got through the first half pretty well, and I was feeling good about myself. And I was supporting myself with a, um, a boulder. My pack was a little lighter, but then I slipped, and my arm went down on a boulder, and my arm totally dislocated. And I heard a pop, and I rolled down. <laughs> like basically, that spot, I just imagine rolling backwards with a pack on it, and I was turtling which means you're sticking your legs in the air and you're backed out because you can't do anything. And I had to unstrap myself. I rolled a little further. I'd just been talking to a guy whose trail name was Flippy. And so I yelled out, hey, Flippy, I think I dislocated my shoulder. <laughs> so Flippy comes back. And I, I had, uh, he was like, okay. He didn't know what was going on. Um, I had a phone, but we couldn't get reception because we were in this, this little and a notch. Um, so Flippy took my phone and went, went north to try and get, um, to get help. Um, now, that, the, the journey of the phone is a completely different story. I ended up going from Maine to Canada to Houston to New York, where I got it again. Um, but that's a different sermon. Um, so so I'm, I'm down with my, my shoulder dislocated. And I, the two books I had at the time, well, I had one book, really. It was the um, All Quiet on the Western Front, <laughs> which is about the, the horrors of trench warfare. It was not really a good uplifter when you're stuck with a dislocated shoulder. I had written down some poems to try and memorize. They were also, it was like a World War I theme, I think, in my English degree. And it was a Wilfred Owen poem that's called Dulce et Decorum Est. And it's like, bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags, we curse through sludge. It was like, this was also not an uplifter <laughs> in my moment of pain. And it hurt. Dis- dislocated shoulder hurts. It's, it's by that point, the worst pain I ever had in my life. Um, I could kind of like put my sleeping bag under my arm to kind of numb the pain, but if I breathed too much, it hurt really badly. It was like a tolerable pain with that. Eventually, there was a couple from Canada who came and, and stayed with me, and they were like, we don't know what to do, but we, we're, going to st- we're not going to leave you. Do you need water? Do you need anything else? And then, and then the guy who I'd hiked that first day with um, came up. His trail name was Trail Light. And he came up to me, and he said, Tex, I've never done this before, 
but my dad's a doctor, and I've read an article. <laughs> now, normally, my, um, I'm a little more um, discerning in my medical <laughs> care. <laughs> I prefer you know, doctors, EMTs, nurse practitioners to try and nurses to try and take care of things like, like dislocated arms. Um, after I got back on the trail a few days later, I actually ran into two ER doctors who were on a day hike. And they saw me walking in a sling. And they were like, like, like what, what happened? Why are you hiking in a sling? And so I kind of told them the story. And they both like, got, almost got in an argument about what they would have done in the situation. Because their training was basically, if you go to the ER, they just knock you out. And you just kind of fiddle the joint back in. Um, that's, you, can't, you can't do that in the bottom of a canyon. And so, uh, so I didn't know what the best, the best technique would be. There's a few different techniques. They are all really painful. They all may or may not work. Um, but, but I get back and I said, yes, yes, do whatever you can. I, I'd stopped. I, my shoulder had been out for an hour and a half. And when you have a dislocation, the pain comes from the muscles, like losing their tension. And so the muscles constrict on your body. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse over time. And I didn't care if, it, if he cut my arm off. I just wanted something different. The pain, that dull, numbing pain. I couldn't see beyond it. I couldn't think beyond it. I was, I was restless with it. I just needed something to change. That's, that's what I, I think of when I think of being restless with suffering. My brothers and sisters, we are continuing our series on restlessness in this season of Lent. Last week, we talked about being restless with temptation. This week, it's restless with suffering. And that's one of those aspects of suffering we don't often reflect on is the fact that when we're in pain, we really can't see very much around us except for that pain. It blinds us. It keeps us limited. This happens a lot with, with trauma and different traumas people experience. Now, oftentimes trauma is, is thought to happen just because of, like, of, of a great, a tragic event or, or you know, war and battle or different things like that. But trauma is not the event itself. You can have trauma from events that you may not think matter that much. You can walk away from a car crash and think everything is fine. But the point of trauma is not your reaction to an event, but your body's reaction to an event. And our bodies can react differently than we think we do. And we can have, have trauma inside us that kind of restricts how we see our life. And it's the same way how, how emotional and physical suffering are interlinked, that we can't separate emotional suffering and physical suffering, that we, they're so connected that when you're suffering physically, you're also suffering emotionally. And the same thing, when you're going through a hard time in life, there are physical dimensions to that. It, it changes our body. It's not like our bodies and our minds are not these nice, neat buckets that we can just fully separate. And when we're, when we're experiencing pain and experiencing suffering, it covers all of that. And like I said, it limits our vision. It's like driving through a pea soup fog where we can't see what's right in front of us. And so we have to go so slowly if we're even moving at all. In the scripture for today, Jesus describes what is going to happen to him. He says he's going to suffer many things. This, in the Greek word pathine, pathine um, pathos, 
Pathos can mean suffer. It also means change. He is going to, many things are going to change about him. And Peter doesn't like to hear this. Peter gets up like, wait a minute, Jesus. But also Peter responds kind of like you would respond to a child who's had a bad day at school. It's like, no, 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 Jesus. It's, it's not your fault. You're beautiful. It doesn't matter that Mary Margaret said you're ugly. You're beautiful inside. Peter thinks he's doing the good thing. He doesn't want Jesus to feel bad. And then Jesus rebukes him with something even stronger. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking of God. You are thinking of man. Peter, again, misses the point. Peter is like the person who's all dressed up for a big interview or in a big event, but then it starts raining, and so they, they just try and stay dry. They try as hard as they can to stay dry. They get like three umbrellas and two coats, and they're going to stay dry, and they're not going to get muddy, and they get so worried about trying to stay dry. When if they just admitted they'll be wet, everything would be fine. Peter is trying to stay dry from suffering, to avoid it, to keep it out of his life. Peter is trying to keep Jesus from it, to try and put all the umbrellas out. It's like, no, Jesus, I got you. You're going to stay dry. We got you covered. And Jesus is like, no, Peter, you are missing the point. You are missing the point. As Jesus says earlier in Mark, the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. As we experienced in our area the past few weeks, you know, power goes out for the just as well as the unjust. You get a boil water notice for the just as well as the unjust. It's not, it doesn't depend exactly on what you did or who you are, and these things happen. We can't avoid it. Jesus doesn't like suffering. God doesn't like suffering. In fact, the whole point of Jesus coming to save us is to respond to the brokenness of this world that causes the suffering around us. I mean, some people are going to feel suffering in more acute ways, that is true, but we are all going to experience it in some type in our life. But, but restlessness and suffering often takes shape of this attempt to totally avoid it, to live our lives as if it doesn't exist, to try and, try and hold all the umbrellas, to try and take all of the herbal supplements, to try and do all the things that are going to keep us at perfection when the clock of time, when time keeps on ticking away at us. God doesn't like suffering. God says that he will wipe every tear from our eye. But the point of suffering is not just to learn from it. God doesn't impose suffering on us to teach us a lesson. It is a reaction to the freedom God gives us in this world. And our response and God's response to suffering is not just to say, like I do sometimes, buck up, kid, but, but to stand with us. This is the point of Jesus coming, is so that Jesus can stand with humanity in solidarity and walk with the disciples. How we can think of how we can limit the suffering of others, how we can be with those who are hurting. When Jesus says, whoever loves their life will lose it. It means if you are so fixated on protecting your life, on protecting what you have, that you are ignoring the world around you, you have lost that life. It is no longer a full life. All love of any kind involves change, involves change of some kind. If you love somebody and nothing about you changes, they are just an object to you. 
If there is no dialogue, if there is no growth, if there is no community between you and them, it is just you have objectified them fully. This is what Jesus is trying to get us away from. That Peter is trying to protect Jesus to make sure he doesn't change, but Jesus is claiming that he is love and is willing to go as far as the cross for us. Life happens, pain happens. The choice for us as individuals, as a society, as a church, is not to try and avoid pain, but to stand with those who suffer, to stand with those who are hurt. And when we feel strong, so that we don't feel like it's because of all the things we did, but to look out and see those who are not strong at the moment and to stand with them, to see it as God's gift. And when we are hurting and when we are in pain, to let others sit with us to receive their care. Peter wasn't ready for what was going to happen next. Often, when we come to faith, we're not ready for what is going to happen next. Last week, we talked about um, restless with temptation and how Jesus is tempted after the baptism. Often, temptation happens after faith. When you become a Christian, you don't get to, there's not an elimination of pain. There's still suffering after it, but what happens is that is transformed by God. Faith does not erase suffering. It transforms it because we no longer suffer alone. When we are hurt, there are others with us. When one of us is hurting, we can all hurt with them. When one of us is joyful, we can celebrate with them. The solidarity is God's solution to the suffering of this world. Solidarity of God with us, solidarity of us with each other. And so to get back to my story, when I was in that canyon, um, <laughs> so Trail Light, he, he, you know, he gave me his pitch that he'd read an article, and I was like, sure, go for it. And um, his technique was to pull on my arm and then to rotate it up. And so he pulled for a little bit and um, tried once, and it, it, it didn't work. Um, and the, the couple from Canada they, they, they started crying because of looking at my face <laughs> during this. So about five minutes later, it's like, do you want to try again? It's like, yes, anything, please. And so he did it again, and, and it went back, and it went back into place. And it was just like, it went from like a pain level of 11 to 2, of just, <sighs> I said, thank you. I said, thank you. Um, and then, but, but the powerful thing was not, was not the guy I yo-yoed with. It was that couple from Canada who stayed with me the whole time, who, who took me to a shelter, who found a ride for me to get me to Berlin, New Hampshire, where I could go to the hospital. They, they, they weren't doctors. They didn't know what to do, but they were with me, and they wouldn't let me go. They reminded me that I was not alone. In this season of Lent, let us stand with each other. In a little bit, we're gonna, we have the honor of commissioning two new Stephen ministers. And in my understanding of Stephen ministry, that, that's so much of what it is. It's that solidarity of standing with those who are suffering, of talking with them. It's not about fixing people. It's reminding them that they are loved. In the midst of grief, in the midst of trauma, that they are worthy of attention and affection. In this season of Lent, even if you are not a Stephen minister, you can stand with people in your life. You can be with them. 
You don't have to forget the needs of the community when you're going through a hard time. Let us not forget our own needs. Let us not think that we are super men and super women who don't need friends, who don't need support, who don't need to see other people. When we live and act and worship and pray with an eye towards our neighbor, God is glorified. And conversely, when we live and act and pray as to tear down others, we are tearing down God's kingdom in the process. So let us instead stand on the side of God. Let us stand on the side of each other. Let us heal when we can heal. Let us support those who heal. Let us support acts of healing. Let us care. Let us hope. Let us be a people of peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.